Good morning. You can have a seat. Welcome to Branches. I'm Amanda Clark. I'm the pastor here at Branches, and I'm so happy to see each of you this morning. Um, If this is your first Sunday with us, boy, I'm thrilled you're here. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, One of the ways that you can help us get to know you better is to fill out the orange Connect card that you were given uh, at the entrance today. It looks like that one on the screen. And you can fill that out anytime during this service with the pen in your gift bag or in the seat back pocket in front of you. And then you can just give that back to the same person who gave it to you. Or you can tuck it in our offering drop box on your way out the door today. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I want to talk about the offering for a minute now. And this is for people who uh, regularly attend branches and call this your church home. If if it's your first Sunday here, don't worry about this part. Uh, But we are so thankful to each of you who have chosen to faithfully give to the work God is doing in Warsaw through branches. And I want to tell you that one of the best ways that you can steward, you can help us steward the resources that God is giving us is to sign up for reoccurring giving. Because if we can count on that uh, donation, if we can count on that, then we can budget for it. And so it's a really helpful tool for us uh, if, you, if you're willing to sign up for reoccurring giving. You can do that on our website, branchesvineyard.org slash give, or on the Church Center app. And we also have a text to give option if that works better for you can also give cash and check at the box in the back. But we thank you so much for um, just the ways that you are loving Jesus and showing him your faithfulness through giving. Good morning, friends online. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us today. I want to keep you in the loop about a couple things coming up in our church family. The first thing I want to say is I just heard from Amelia that the office is starting to get really cramped with all of the get the gifts that have come in for the Afghani refugees. So good job, church family. Thank you. That's awesome. We can't wait to give that delivery on Tuesday um, to Valley Springs Fellowship, who's delivering them to the place they're going in South Bend. Uh, but next Sunday, March 13, after church, so right after this, we're having our first carry-in lunch as one service church. Woohoo! <laughs> So uh, here's how we want to do it so that we don't just end up with like chips and cake for our lunch. Uh, Could you please bring an item that is coordinating with your last name? On the screen, you'll see that. And uh, if you are bringing that dish, please bring a quantity that would be big enough to feed your family um, or a couple people if you're an individual. And uh, that way we can make sure there's plenty of food to go around. So take a screenshot of that, put it in your phone, whatever's going to help you remember what your dish to bring is. And we're, we're going to have a delicious meal next Sunday after church. This will be a really good opportunity if you've been looking around and seeing people like, I didn't even know they came to this church because they went to the other service. You can meet them. This is a perfect opportunity. So please come. Another way that you can meet people is through our life groups. I know, like, guys, we just made it through the worst two months of the year. (laughs) January and February are hard. And most of us don't leave the house unless we absolutely have to during those months. And so... uh, it's changing. Yesterday was glorious. Maybe you're having that sense that you're willing to leave the house a little bit more often. If you are not part of a Branches Life Group, we want to encourage you to get involved. We're at one service. There's more opportunity than ever to get to know each other. So if you're not part of a life group, go to branchesvineyard.org groups and find a group that fits your schedule and your needs and uh, get, get more connected. We're in this season of our church's life, our vision is building a loving, spirit-centered community. That word community is really big on our hearts. Who are we as a church? How are we going to impact this city if we don't know and love and serve each other really well, if we're not doing life together? So yeah, get involved. Super excited about that. And this morning, uh, Justin is sharing the word with us, continuing on in our series, Jesus at the Table. So let's welcome him. I don't know about you guys, that chips and cake idea sounds right up my alley. (laughs) 
So normally at this point, I would have had like a whole service with like maybe five people to practice this whole thing, and this is what you get this morning. So just you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. And if you do throw a fit, direct your emails at Amanda. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're in a series uh, uh, called Jesus at the Table um, that's, that's kind of a deep dive about uh, how Jesus uses the dinner table, uses hospitality to, uh, to build community, and, and then by extension, how we can do the same. Uh, so, but even more than that, um, we're going to see this morning that Jesus uses the dinner, dinner table to redefine what matters in, in the sort of social order that he is creating, the kingdom order. Um, Jesus was building a community of kingdom people, and, and like Amanda said, um, you know, last week, in that community that Jesus is building, we, the people of the kingdom, don't reject broken people. We, um, we move toward them. We pursue broken people. Uh, and, and, and in Jesus' day, that, of course, looked like breaking a lot of social rules and uh, placing value where society doesn't place value. Um, and that's precisely what it means for us. Uh, Jesus is still calling us today to radically counter-cultural community. Um, and so this is who we are as a branches family. God is calling us uh, to be a loving, Holy Spirit-centered community. Um, so... Today, we're going to be looking, last week we looked at, uh, you know, Jesus' meal with Matthew, uh, the tax collector and all of his tax collector buddies. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Simon, who's a Pharisee, in the um, book of Luke, chapter 7. Uh, so if you want to cue that up in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible and you don't have, like, a Bible app, um, feel free to take a second and, and, like, download one. YouVersion is a great one if you don't have one. Um, I've been using the Bible Project app here lately, really loving it. Um, and if, you, if you're new to the soul, like, following God thing, um, maybe just go back to the beginning of Luke after this and read, read right through it and see what you find there. Um, personally, I love sharing meals with people uh, and, like, hosting people in my home and being invited to other people's homes, wink, <laughs> wink, to, uh, to have a meal. Uh, I, I, I really think that, like, a meal, looking at you guys, Joneses, uh, sorry, that was, a, that was an ad lib. I, I think a meal that is like made by, your, by you with your own hands and, and, and you know, uh, shared with people in your own home at your own table is a sacred experience. And it doesn't matter like what it is or the quality or, or the setting. I mean, if it's like hot dogs on a card table in an RV like, or if it's, you know, prime rib or something in a fancy house... Um, this, the experience is still sacred because it's made sacred by our, our kind of vulnerability. It, it requires this mutual vulnerability on the part of the, the recipient of the hospitality and the giver of the hospitality. Is what I'm giving going to be good enough? You know, is, is, is the way that I'm acting around the dinner table good enough? Are my manners good enough? Am I, am I screwing this up? Am I, you know, am I doing this right, right? There's this vulnerability in giving and receiving. And I think that's what, you know, I mean, if we think about it, um, there's, that's the case with really anything meaningful that's built between people. It requires some level of vulnerability. For me, um, the vulnerability looks like having to interact with children or with pets. Uh, just, it's a real vulnerable experience. I don't know what to do with kids. I'm terrible with kids. Uh, I can't play. I, don't, I can't pretend. I don't know how to even, where to begin with that. I don't know how to talk to kids or what was like age appropriate. Like how many, you know, even if you tell me like, oh yeah, at this age, they have 500 words. I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me. I you know, if you leave me alone with your three-year-old, I'm going to probably try to start a conversation about whether or not plants can get their feelings hurt, you know? <laughs> and they'll be like, I have a belly button, you know? And, and it's the same with, you know, with pets, like, if I come over to your house, your dog is immediately going to discern that I hate it. Dogs can't stand to be hated. So it's going to try to like win me over by like jumping up on me and getting in my face and bringing me like a slobber soaked chunk of rope. And then it's going to try to take it away from me. And I'm going to spend the whole rest of the evening trying to discreetly go wash my hands uh, uh, so as not to, you know, hurt your feelings, um, you know, because I don't want to touch your dog. Uh, <laughs> oh. But so recently, I actually had a really meaningful and like satisfying at the table experience with a group of people in Michigan. Uh, if you've, 
been unfortunate enough to like stand still in front of me for like a couple seconds in a row over the last eight months or so. You've, you've probably heard me regale a tale about how stressful my life is right now and you know how many bad things are happening. So I thought it would be a good idea to schedule for myself like a personal retreat. Uh, and so I went to this place in Michigan called The Hermitage. Whatever you're imagining in your mind of a place called The Hermitage, it's accurate completely. Uh, <clears throat> so it's like this, it's a whole thing's Mennonite, very Mennonite. It's like this big, giant old barn that's been converted into this, you know, multi-room uh, living space. And there's all these, like, little cubbies here and there with chairs and stuff. And, and um, all your meals are included. And uh, so you go to um, the, the meal time at the time that you're told to. And there's a very stern-faced woman named Ursula who's prepared a meal for you in, like, a 40-quart pot with like this much really watery vegetable soup. It's all vegetarian at the very bottom of it. Just exactly enough for the people that are there. And she says a prayer from a lectionary of some kind and then, and then all of the you know, people file by in silence and sort of slop our gruel into our cup. And then we go and sit in silence, complete silence. Far away, as far away from each other in the dining room as we can get. All these guests just eating our meal in silence. And then when it's over, you know, we take our dishes over, and of course you have to, uh, you know, compost your scraps because, again, Mennonite. Uh, and, you know, put your dishes in the dishwasher, and then you leave. No goodbye, no thank you for the food. No, that was delicious. Just, you just leave, and you go to your room, and you spend the rest of the day in silence. It was amazing. <laughs> I, I, I highly recommend. Uh, and it sounds, you know, it sounds really, uh, you know, like a terrible experience, but, uh, and not hospitable at all, but it was so hospitable uh, for me because, and I gather probably for the other people, though I have no idea because we never spoke to one another, um, because there was a space that was created for us, uh, a, a hospitality that created a space for us to get what we needed from God in those moments. Uh, we experienced the abundance of God's kingdom in the silence of our fellow hermits, you know? Uh, and, that, and that, you know, that, uh, that abundance showed up for me like just oxygen into the suffocating experiences of my life. Um, and that's what Jesus' ministry of hospitality is like. It, it's, and hopefully ours too, it meets the needs of the people at our table where they're at, Right? Uh, and it might break a bunch of social rules, and it might look like spending time with all the wrong people. Uh, but when the evening is over, with Jesus at least, everyone is going to go home uh, with exactly what they need to either rise up out of the mire and shame of rejection into the fullness of kingdom uh, equality and value, or in the case of the Pharisees, to come down from the ivory tower of their fake superiority and untouchable specialness into a sort of ordinariness of kingdom, equality, and value. It, it can be uncomfortable and awkward. I can tell you from the, my experience at the Hermitage, it, everything in me wanted to like greet the person. And like, I, there was one that like my first day there, I could not help myself but help like clean up other people's dishes. Like I just wanted to help. I wanted to, you know... And they were done at the same time as me. And I was like, oh, I'll just grab these people's dishes. And it was like this jarring effect, like, oh, you know, like they have the earbuds in or whatever. Uh, it can be awkward to be in these moments of hospitality with people um, like they need to be. But um, as we saw last week, in the, in the community that Jesus is building, we don't reject broken people, we pursue them. And this week we're going to see that in the community that Jesus is building, uh, we lovingly reject false value assessments. We place value where Jesus' kingdom ethic is applied. So let's look at Jesus in action with Simon. Uh, this is in uh, Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 36. If you spent a whole lot of time reading the gospel accounts, you've definitely heard this story before. Um, but I encourage you to like, try to approach it with a sort of freshness, a, new, a newness, because we're tr- going to try to get a bit more meaning out of it, hopefully without getting too much into the weeds. Um, So it starts with this. One day, or one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. This is Simon. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Um, So if you remember last week, we were talking about the meal with with Matthew and his tax collector friends. Um, The the meal in in that time, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily as much about like just spending time with friends 
as it was a way to show your status or to improve your, sta- your status. Um, there was a certain level of like reciprocity to the whole affair. Like if I, if I you know, honor you in my home, you're gonna, you're gonna reciprocate. You're gonna invite me and honor me in your home. I bring you up, you bring me up. You see how this works? Um, so there, there's like this reciprocity and the meals were held in view, like in full view of the community through these big open windows in their home uh, and, and onlookers and passersby were meant to sort of see who you're hosting and make the proper associations. Oh, this is, a, this is who this person's choosing to associate themselves with. This is who this person is, a, is aligning with, right? So in light of that, this whole arrangement with like Matthew and the tax collectors is awesome because they're getting to share a meal and thus be associated with and publicly connected with this honored prophet, Jesus, that has the power to heal the sick and to raise the dead. And, and who knows, he might even be the Messiah. You know? So this is, like, this is a major you know, sort of boon for the tax collectors to have this honored person in their home. But having said that, it was like social suicide for Jesus because you know, like the Pharisees who were at the top of the social totem pole, um, for them, this totally disqualified Jesus from being a legitimate prophet. Um, they were so fixated on the rules and the social hierarchy, uh, and they were so legalistic about the traditions that they had added on top of the actual Jewish law um, that, that they just simply could not conceive of a world where a prophet of God would share a meal with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with fill-in-the-blank, right? Uh, and so they, you know, they call him out right there at the meal with Matthew. And they, they demand of his disciples, why do you guys eat and drink with such scum? How can you call yourselves people of God and choose to, to be publicly associated and aligned with this kind of person, you know? Um, and, they, and they go further. They go on the attack um, with like John the Baptist, who was also a big time prophet and, and who had publicly endorsed Jesus. They attack him saying that he's demon-possessed and that Jesus is a, a, a glutton and a drunkard. Um, and, and so what is Jesus' response in this whole thing? Of course, it, you know, he tells them, I'm not interested in, in you. you know, I don't want your approval. I'm not interested in trying to help, you know, help people who don't think they need any help. I'm interested in spending time with people who already know that they're a train wreck and they know they need a savior, right? And, and this is completely consistent with Jesus' stated mission. At the, at the very beginning of his public ministry, before he had done any of the miracles and all these fun stuff, um, he begins his ministry by quoting from Isaiah 61, speaking of himself, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come right? That, that he's, he's already stated at the outset, the people who are going to chiefly benefit from the kingdom that I'm bringing are the blind and the sick and the sinner and the, and the prisoner. And, and that's precisely what, his, what he did, you know? Um, and, and, and that showed up in the form of, of miracles over and over and over. And yet the Pharisees still refused to accept that this was God's plan, you know? And and so they begin scrutinizing, like after this meal with, uh, with Matthew and the tax collectors, moving on like between that meal and this meal with Simon, there's this barrage of events where the, the uh, Pharisees are just scrutinizing the Jesus and disciples every move, you know, trying to find fault with it, trying to use anything they could to discredit them and further prove that they're, they're the ones that are God, you know, that are godly and, and not Jesus and his disciples. Uh, and, and so in the next chapter, you know, it looked like Jesus and his disciples walk into town through a grain field and they're just sort of, you know, idly picking, you know, picking some uh, heads of grain off and rubbing the husk off and eating it as they're walking through this field. And, uh, you know, the disciples, or no, the, the Pharisees are like, ha, ah, you're, you know, uh, harvesting grain on the Sabbath, sinner, you know, implicit in that whole thing is, of course, that the you know, Pharisees are following Jesus and his disciples closely enough to be able to observe their behavior and then jump out of the weeds. Aha! I've caught you. You're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. You're a sinner, you know? And this is the level of scrutiny, right? And, and so Jesus, of course, 
in typical Jesus fashion, refuses to play their game to advance himself in their stupid you know, social hierarchy or economy, um, he was committed to establishing an entirely new uh, social order that would necessarily bring uh, the Pharisees down and the sinners up, right? So after they make a stink about this meal with Matthew and the tax collectors, he, he goes on to, um, to heal a person on the Sabbath, which they again, you know, said, oh, you're working on the Sabbath by healing people, you know? But he does it on purpose to demonstrate that the Sabbath is there for the people and not the people there for the Sabbath, you know? And he, he heals a Roman centurion's uh, servant, you know? And again, the Romans are the bad guys. Why are you helping the bad guys? But he does it to prove that even the Romans have more faith than the wicked Pharisees. He touches a dead body. That's like big time, big time no-no in Jewish law. But he does it on purpose to prove that his touch you know, that not even a dead body has the power to make him unclean, but rather his touch has the power to make a dead body clean and alive again. And he defends John the Baptist. You know, like these guys are going around saying that John the Baptist is this demon-possessed, you know, maniac or whatever. He defends John the Baptist, asserts his association with him yet again, setting the record straight before John the Baptist is executed. All these things, all these moves, right? It all looks like just, you know, Jesus going about his day, but these are all deliberate things that Jesus has done and that Luke has pointed out for us as moves that Jesus is making to destabilize, to upset the the carefully ordered social hierarchy of the Pharisees. Um, And so what do the Pharisees do? And it's working, right, in the story. It's like Jesus is amassing these giant crowds of people and speaking to them and teaching them, and they're seeing him as this big prophet. And so what do the Pharisees do to try to, like, uh, counter-move, move, move, counter-move, move, counter-move? Their uh, master plan to sort of put Jesus back in his place is to invite him to dinner. Seriously, Right? So let's pick it up in verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. Uh, So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She knelt down behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, meaning Simon, when Simon saw all this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Okay, so if you still got the picture of the meal with Matthew in your head, this is very, very similar, right? Um, There's big open windows, potentially lots of onlookers um, to see what's going on at Simon's house, except this is so much worse than Jesus eating with a bunch of tax collectors. Like, the Pharisees hated Jesus already, uh, and they were looking for anything that they could to discredit Jesus. And with this sinner woman, they got, like, just the mother load of, like, damning evidence against him. Um, It is often the case in the Bible that, like, when you read something, it seems really strange and weird as, like, a modern reader, but it would have made sense to them in their time. This isn't one of those things. This is, it would have been weird. To the, it's weird to us to think about this whole scene playing out. It was it just as weird to them to, to read this. You know, it, 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 everything about this story seems really bad and at times kind of vulgar, right? Um, so if you can imagine yourself as a first century reader reading this whole story and trying to figure out what in the world is going on here, you probably would have had a couple of contemporary scenes, possibly three, floating through your head as to like why this woman is doing this. What is she trying to accomplish? This whole thing seems super weird, but you know, um, the first scenario would be uh, this lady may or may not be what's called a flute girl. Uh, so sometimes in the ancient world, particularly the like ancient Roman world, hosts would provide entertainment for their guests. And that would come in the form of like male or female uh, slaves or servants that would play music and could possibly be persuaded to, you know, have sex with the dinner guests. Uh, So that sort of thing happened enough in the ancient world um, that it was at least a possibility, I guess. She's rubbing his feet with perfume. She's taking down her hair. That's like, 
I mean, you might as well be taking your clothes off if you're taking your hair down. That's like big time no-no. You're meant to keep that covered. Um, so this whole scene, like all those gestures are like, ah, oh, this is uncomfortable. Um, but if she is a prostitute, why didn't Luke come, out, come right out and say that she's a prostitute? He's done, el- done so elsewhere in, Luke, in the book. Like he's obviously not squeamish about saying a woman is a prostitute if she is. And he doesn't with this woman. So that doesn't make sense. And also Simon is a Pharisee. And like that was a Roman thing to do, but the Romans are pagans. Like a Pharisee would never provide that kind of entertainment at his, at his dinner party, right? And also this woman is weeping to such a degree that she's covering Jesus' feet that enough that it has to be wiped off. I don't know if you've ever burst into tears while you're trying to seduce somebody, but it's kind of a buzzkill, you know? <laughs> Doesn't, <laughs> like, does not, if that's what's going on here, she's not doing a great job of it, you know? So it's probably not that. Scenario two uh, is that, okay, maybe she is, um, she's reenacting a scene from like the famous story of, of Joseph and Aseneth. There's a, a scene that plays out in um, this book called the, the Old Testament Pseudopigrapha. I only bring that word in because it's so fun to say, Pseudopigrapha. But it's just basically like, an, it's not scripture, but it's stories about people that are in scripture. And this one's about Joseph, like the Joseph from, you know, um, uh, uh, the, 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the one who gets the, the, the coat of many colors, who gets sold into slavery, and, and later on he get, rescues his family or whatever. This is a story about um, how, you know, he falls in love with this Egyptian princess, and, and she lives her whole life in, you know, this Rapunzel-style secluded tower. She hates men, vows that she's never going to get married until she meets Joseph, and then she's like, in love with him, but he's not in love with her, and they dance around for a couple hours, and, uh, and eventually they fall in love, and, and they're kissing, and, you know, just making out, uh, and she invites him to dinner um, for a meal that she's prepared for him, and then the whole thing plays out, the crying on the feet, the hair, the perfume, the whole deal, right, uh, and then they make out some more, and then, you know, the, the climax of the whole story, they start planning their wedding, um, and, and that's how the story ends, <laughs> Uh, so maybe they're thinking, oh, maybe this is, they're reenacting the scene from Joseph and Aseneth, except that that is like a romance story, right? I mean, that in the story, that took place in private, um, and maybe like lovers in that time would reenact that sort of thing in private, but it was hardly the sort of thing that you would do after showing up uninvited to a dinner party uh, to a Jewish rabbi in front of the whole town, right? So that doesn't necessarily compute either. So like, what is, what's going on here? What is Luke doing in telling the story the way, the way that he is? Well, he is deliberately sort of pressurizing this whole story with awkwardness. He's making this thing as uncomfortable as possible. He's deliberately omitted details from Jesus' interaction with Simon, and he's deliberately offered way too many details about Jesus' interaction with this sinful woman without context in order to create this, this like incredibly awkward, uncomfortable situation. And again, if you're a first century reader, this is like a Fairly Brothers movie to you. Like this is a gross out comedy. Like you're just, oh, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And it's like a slam dunk for the Pharisees because again, they're looking for anything they can to discredit Jesus. And this looks really, really bad for Jesus. And Luke draws specific attention to this by narrating Simon's thoughts for us. So the reader can actually, you know, see what's going on in Simon's head. It said, like in 39, it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, yes, I knew this guy wasn't a prophet. If he knew who this woman was, and he clearly doesn't, he would never let this person touch him because she is a sinner. He would have to go through this entire elaborate purity ritual to purify himself from just the touch of this person, right? This is a slam dunk. It could not be going better for Simon. And it's exactly at that moment that the trap sort of slams shut on on Simon. Anybody ever see, like, you know the movie Man of Steel? Who are my DC fans out there? Yeah? You, I know you. Yeah, Man of Steel, the first of the Henry Cavill ones. Yes, isn't he so beautiful? Um, there's this scene where, where he like turns himself into the army and he floats down in majesty and, and they handcuff him and lead him down this hallway into the, this interrogation room and they briefly attempt to intimidate him. And, and at some point he just breaks his handcuffs with no effort at all and reveals to them that he can hear and see everything through the walls and, you know, 
that uh, they'll never, never be able to control him. And he acknowledges how uncomfortable that must make them, but that's just the way that it is. And this, and this is Jesus, this is like that in this story. This is Jesus, okay, let's put our cards on the table moment, right? So he says in verse 40, um, Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. So right off the bat in Jesus' response, he has signaled to his dinner host that he's done pretending that he has any cares whatsoever for um, his host's social hierarchy um, or the, the value of it, you know, at all by addressing Simon by his first name. That's a big time no-no. When you address somebody by their first name, you're asserting that, they're your e- that you're their equal, right? Um, so Simon obviously can't bring himself to reciprocate and call him Jesus back. He calls him, yes, teacher, you know, by trying to establish some dumb decorum again. But Jesus goes on anyway, and he says, um, a man, he tells him a story. He says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces of silver to another. Just a side note, 500 pieces of silver is like just a ridiculous sum of money. It might as well be like $100,000, right? Um, so he says, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Um, Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Uh, Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time that I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table, meaning like Simon's cronies, said among themselves, like sort of standing in solidarity with Simon, who is this man, you know, that he goes around forgiving sins. Um, And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So I get that these like, these gestures, the oil to anoint your head, these are foreign ones to us, but they're important to a first century reader. So let's kind of connect some of these dots. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has been establishing a new world social order called the kingdom of God. And wherever that kingdom showed up with it did so with healing and with freedom, and it upset the carefully ordered social hierarchy of the Pharisees. The problem was that the chief beneficiaries of this new world order, this new kingdom of God, were sinners and not the Pharisees. So to them, this couldn't possibly be the real kingdom of God, because if it were the real kingdom of God, it would be benefiting them first and not all these sinners, right? So what do they do to try to put Jesus back in his place at the bottom of their social order where he belonged is they invite him to dinner, right? Dinners are a public affair that are about communicating to your whole community who you approve of and who you have alliances with and who you do not approve of and do not have alliances with. Your guests communicate to your community um, who you are, right? It, It communicates your status and it communicates their status, So from the second that Jesus walked in the door, he was deliberately shamed and condescended to, to deny your guest uh, water to wash their feet or oil to anoint their head, or most of all, to deny them even a kiss of greeting, um, is to communicate to them in the most offensive way that you possibly can, you are beneath me. I, 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 I'm not, you are so far beneath me that I can't even... Uh, bring myself to obey the law of Moses and and kiss you on the cheek to greet you. No, you are beneath me. Um, It was to send a clear message to all of Capernaum, this man is a sinner and and identification with him makes you an enemy of us and it makes you an enemy of God. But none of this matters to Jesus, right? Like he, he probably knew this was coming. I'm sure that he did not imagine for a second that they were inviting him to their home in order to honor him. Like, he accepted the invitation and walked, walked right into this trap, you know. But he, 
He does so because he didn't come for people who think they're healthy, right? He came for those who know that they are sick and in need of a doctor. Jesus doesn't need the endorsement of the Pharisees. If, he, if they're attempting to communicate to the whole town that he's a friend of sinners, that's great for Jesus' agenda because that's exactly what he's up to is being a friend to sinners, right? He doesn't, need to pr- he doesn't need the Pharisees to prove who he is. He wants the endorsement of sinners, right? That's who he's looking to have the endorsement of. So when the woman, you know, who more than likely already had faith in Jesus, because the passage says that, you know, he, this whole gesture was, you know, uh, showing much love because she had already been forgiven. Um, this whole thing, you know, uh, she must have saw the, the public shaming from the window and decided she knew exactly what to do because in her social economy, like she understood Jesus is starting something new. And in that social order, I actually have a chance. This is my shot to have a second chance with God. This man is my only shot actually, because if there's no way for me to climb out of the mire of my circumstances, except through this man, he is my open door to God, right? So she knew exactly what to do. She will show him the respect and the honor, and the gratitude that he deserves. And Jesus is delighted to receive her hospitality in the most awkward, party-foul way possible. Why? Because Jesus wants the failures. Those are his status symbol. He wants the screw-ups, right? He wants the people who have no other hope except him. They are his status symbol not the social hierarchy. So when Jesus said, just like a chapter before this in, this in a sermon, he said, blessed are you who are poor and you who are hungry and you who weep and are hated and mocked and cursed for the name of Jesus. This is what he's talking about because in the new social order that Jesus is creating, the people at the top of the ROI chart in God's economy are the ones who awkwardly wreck a dinner party to weep the tears of a forgiven sinner on the feet of Jesus. And likewise, uh, when Jesus, you know, also said in that same sermon, woe to you who are healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Woe to you who receive the praise of the crowds. This is also who he's talking about. The ones for whom the only direction to go from where they are is down, right? Woe to you. Because it is difficult indeed to forfeit the confidence that you have in the monopoly money that you've based your value on. I mean, it's, monopoly money is really nice when you're, you know, as long as you're playing this very boring game of monopoly, you'll never convince me otherwise. But the minute you admit to yourself that this monopoly money only makes, only has any value when I'm playing this dumb game, it's, it's kind of sad. Like it, it sort of wrecks your world. Woe to you indeed who realize that all of your wealth is dumb monopoly money, right? The only place to go is down. But this is exactly what Jesus is doing at the table here. He is reordering the social value system around what matters objectively. Uh, and that's precisely what you and I are meant to do as well. Our homes and our tables can and should be a place where people find their true value, where we reject uh, our society's value system. We reject the social hierarchy that has put them in their place, and we say, yeah, that doesn't matter anymore. At our table, you find your true value. Our homes should be a place where we pour out the kind of hospitality that the sinner poured out for Jesus because we have been given so, so much, that we must love so, so much. Giving much love because we have been given so much. Um, It is, yes, it is vulnerable to open our hearts and our homes and our table um, when you're not sure how it's going to go and you're not sure that what you give them is going to be good enough. Um, But that's what precisely what it looks like for us to go lower so that other people can come, come up, right? This is precisely what Jesus is doing. He's, he's bringing the, the Pharisees down and he's bringing the sinner up. He's reordering society and that's what we do at our table. In the community that Jesus is building, we lovingly reject false value assessments and we apply the kingdom value assessment. We cannot put the entire world right. Only Jesus will be able to do that. But we can put the world right at our table. 
in the microcosm of our home and our table, we can put the world right for a moment, for an evening, for a meal. And to the extent that we can, we should. Okay, so let's wrap up there um, uh, and talk about our next steps. Each week, uh, we're trying to just challenge you guys as, as leaders to, um, to utilize the orange cards in the, uh, the seat back in front of you and the writing utensil, just to jot down a few words based on a couple questions I'm going to ask you. Uh, and those few couple words are going to serve as like your next steps just for this week. Uh, and the, the idea behind this is just simple like goal setting. When you want to set goals for your life, uh, it, you know, the chances of you, you know, following through on those goals goes up markedly when you literally just write it down. So take a second and write a couple things down. Uh, if you haven't filled out that, that um, car, contact card um, and with your information, if you're newer, we'd love it if you could do that because we'd love to be able to reach out and get to know you guys better. Um, so, but for the rest of us, um, I want you to think about these couple of questions and just jot down a couple of things to help jog your memory this week. The couple of things I want you to think about are who is God calling you to invite to your table to experience that kingdom value? Like, who, who is at the bottom who needs to realize in God's economy they're actually at the top? Who in your life needs to experience that kingdom value? And then secondly, who is God calling you to invite to this church to experience their kingdom value? Who in your life thinks that they would burst into flames if they ever walked through the door of a church? That's precisely the person for which the church exists for. Who, is, who in your life is that person who needs to experience within a community of loving people their value in God's kingdom? Who needs to have the false value assessment that's been put on them over and over and over and over their entire life? Who needs to be told that value assessment matters? None. It doesn't matter anymore. This is the only value assessment that really matters and you will find it here in this community. Write down those couple names. Who do you invite into your home who needs to experience the value of the kingdom? And who do you want to invite into this church who needs to feel within this community the value of the kingdom? So with that, um, we're going to spend a little bit more time in prayer uh, and in worship. Don't feel like you need to like, rush into to singing. If you're still trying to think, think and interact with the Holy Spirit, take a second to, uh, to just wait and ask the Lord to give you give you some, you know, some leading or whatever. Don't, don't rush to just write a name down because this needs to be somebody that you can actually action upon, you know, somebody that you're actually going to follow up with and actually invite into your home, actually invite to this church. And if they say no, you're going to keep inviting until they finally cave and relent to come to your home for a meal, right? Okay. So with that, I'll hand it over to Amanda. Right now, we get to share a meal with Jesus in taking communion. We're going to have communion together. If you did not receive uh, communion bread and juice when you walked in the door, will you raise your hand right now? Okay, thank you. We want to make sure we all have it. In this meal, I want, you know, it's very hard to look at this and imagine <laughs> imagine this as a meal that we share together. But I'm, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination because in this space, we are the losers and the failures who all get a seat at the table with Jesus. So let's um, imagine ourselves at that table with him. It branches, we take communion on the first Sunday of every month because Jesus told us, he commanded us in scripture to take communion together so that we can remember his very presence remains with us and dwells with us until he comes again. Every meal we share is a meal with Jesus at the table. And during communion, we eat bread, which Jesus told us represents his body. And we drink juice, which Jesus said represents his blood. And as I share this um, reading that we'll do together and then a, um, a passage of scripture, let's just remember and reflect on the fact that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that, that sets us sinners free and gives us a new life where we can love much because we have been forgiven so much. 
and then I'll pray and we'll take communion together. Come to the table of Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus invites you here as part of the people of God. Come to the table humbly, not because you've earned a place here, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love God and you want to love God more. Come because Jesus first loved us and gave himself for us. Come because you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come because you want to experience the mystery of God's grace. On the night he was handed over, Jesus had a meal with his friends. He took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and said to his disciples, Take, eat, this is my body which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and giving thanks, gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, Remember me. Let's pray together. God, our creator, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, whose love pursues us our whole life long. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to us in word and deed, even unto death, even death on a cross. Come, Holy Spirit, Feed us with your love that we may be filled with power to love God with all our hearts and souls and minds. Amen. You want to get your packet and we'll prepare. Hold your bread and we're going to say together, his body was broken for us. His body was broken for us. Let's take it together. Now we'll say, his blood was shed for us. His blood was shed for us. Let's look at the screen now. And we're going to say this prayer aloud together. We have come to the Lord's table. We have eaten the bread of heaven. God is the one who will transform us so that we can see with Jesus' eyes, hear with Jesus' ears, speak with Jesus' mouth, so that we can be the body of Christ in the world, proclaiming the good news of God's reign. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to head into our ministry time now. And in this time, we um, just take time to tune in to what the Holy Spirit might be doing in us and through us during this morning. We believe that the Holy Spirit is present and active all of our lives, but in a particular way in the church service. And so we want to give room for the Holy Spirit to speak, and we want to tune in and listen to what the Spirit might be saying to us. And so uh, we do that in a couple different ways during this part of the service. Every Sunday, we have a prayer team that is ready and waiting to pray for you about any need you might have. And, and we believe that since the Spirit is speaking, we believe that the Holy Spirit wants to speak a word in particular to one or two of you sitting here. And so every Sunday, we gather at 9.30, and we have a prayer meeting, and, and we say, Lord Jesus, do you want to give a special message to someone sitting here today? And we we listen and pay attention, and when we feel like the Holy Spirit's given us something, we uh, collect those and we put them on the screen. And so what we what we believe is that 
these words on the screen are for someone here. And so maybe today uh, you uh, need healing in your neck. There's a healing word for neck pain. There's another person who um, is having a lot of restless nights. And, and Jesus is inviting you to receive prayer today for better sleep. Um, and so read over those. And if you feel like, yes, I think that that might be God speaking to me, please um, go to the back anytime during the last song and receive prayer about that or any other need you might have. And now we're going to just stand together and participate in an exercise we do every week where we just do some active waiting on the Holy Spirit and listening like, God, what are you saying to me today? And and during this time, we're just going to be still and wait for a, a few seconds, maybe about 10 seconds. And during that time, if you experience something, um, like you might have a feeling in your body, maybe some trembling, a feeling of tingliness. We just believe that that's the Holy Spirit saying like, hey, pay attention, I'm doing something here. And if that happens, we ask you to receive prayer or just raise your hand and I'll, I'll come pray for you or one of us will pray for you. And if you feel overwhelmed by emotion, that might mean that God's up to something too. So we're just going to wait and invite the Holy Spirit. Wait a couple seconds and then we'll go into our last song. So come, Holy Spirit. We invite you now. You're already here, but we just say we're tuned in, we're listening, and we're waiting for you. Levi, I heard that that right now God's taking you through a season of being pushed a little harder than you want to be pushed. And it's because there's growth for you. God's given you a good, sharp mind. And God wants to use that in your life for his glory. And so if you feel a little pushed, a little pressed, a little annoyed at how hard things are, receive that as an invitation for something new God's doing in you. Lord, we just bless that over Levi, and we ask you to grow, grow his capacity to push himself in Jesus' name. Please receive prayer if you, if you uh, need anything this morning. Let's worship.